0: We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, ZenCaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast's discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 57. I'm Jessica Uquinto and I'll be your host today. And today we are talking about perishable artifacts and tribally driven archeology. span Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Donata and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. So today we have Dr. Edward Jolie on the show. Dr. Edward A. Jolie is the new Clara Lee Tanner Associate Curator of Ethnology at the Arizona State Museum and Associate Professor at the School of Anthropology at the University of Arizona. His scholarly interests include the Archaeology of the Americas with particular emphasis on the Desert West, past and present sociocultural diversity, perishable material culture globally, Native American and Anthropologist Relationships, and Ethics in Anthropology, being of mixed Oglala Lakota and Hidalgo Muscogee ancestry, and an enrolled citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation of Oklahoma. He strives to cultivate collaborative relationships and research partnerships with Native Americans and other descendant communities. Dr. Jolie is also in the process of reestablishing his Perishable Artifact Laboratory, literally one of a handful of labs globally, that specializes in the documentation and analysis of perishable material culture, such as textiles, baskets, nets, and footwear. So welcome to the show, Dr. Jolie.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Um, It's it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I... Uh, I'm honored by the invitation, and I'm extremely grateful for, to you all for what you do.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, anytime I get a recommendation from Lori Webster of somebody that I have to have on the podcast, it's like, okay, done.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm, I'm always uh, I'm always fond of, of reminding people that it's always listen to what Lori says. It's, it's always it's a it's smart a thing smart. to listen to to what she says. Yeah
1: good life plans. <laughs> but um, yeah, Laurie's the best. Hi, Laurie, if you're listening. So I, I want to start with, how did how did you get into this field? What got you interested in archaeology?
2: So I think like a lot of people, I've, I've learned over the years that, that people in archaeology, it's rarely is a sort of a straightforward path. And that years ago, there were a lot of people, I guess, you know, when I was younger, who got in archaeology because they had seen Indiana Jones explicitly. And, and that sort of changed as <laughs> the movie has, has aged, and in some ways not aged aged too well. But uh, you know, for me, it's, it's been yeah. a, an important topic of, of, of interest. Uh, it was always something that I, I found fascinating, but it, it hadn't really been on my radar until I was probably 11 or 12. And I had, for a number of years, I'd been fortunate to go to a, a, a really small private school in Maryland where I grew up. And They had a situation where sort of the the spring term, you could go do these sort of short courses for like a week or two. I think it was maybe a week, 10 days. And I had an opportunity to do one that was at Jefferson Patterson Park and Museum in St. Leonard, Maryland. And and it was the site of what is now the Maryland Archaeological Conservation Laboratory, so one of the big state repositories. And it was at the time directed by uh, Dr. Julie King, and she had arranged for an opportunity for students to come in and volunteer. And and I I came in and volunteered. I'd been volunteering for a year or two at a a local nature center uh, and got a big kick of that. Enjoyed being outside and learning stuff. And when I got to to participate in this public archaeology program at at Jefferson Patterson Park, I really was like, I was fascinated. Working on a number of um, pre-contact, but also historic period sites that were on the, the property there in Southern Maryland. And I was hooked. And so for a number of years, I proceeded to volunteer a couple of days a week until I was 15. At that point, they decided I had perhaps done my share of, of flotation sorting and washing of, <laughs> of pounds and pounds of, of brick and oyster shell and uh, started hiring me on field crews as a field tech. And so I did that for several years and, and went to college. And so I, I just was sort of once once I was turned on to, to archaeology I'm so that was it I knew I knew that and there this is it this is what I want to do
1: so you were how old when you started getting paid for archaeology 15 15
2: wow I think there's 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 you know there's there's some legal rules about how old you have to be <laughs> before they can pay you <laughs> right so it was right. it was all volunteer work up to that point um, but it was it was really an amazing opportunity uh, things that have stuck with me for a really really long time and and I, I guess my earlier point about not really understanding or knowing where you're going to go. Is that I, I started out doing that historic archaeology field work and, and lab work, and, and now here I am speaking to you from from Tucson, Arizona, or work with organic artifacts and, and other descendant communities and diverse publics. So it's a, it's a far cry from from some of the lands of, of the East Coast to now being on the homelands of Tono O'odham and, and Pasqua Yaki and Tucson. It's it's exciting, you know. I, I think it's it's a nice reminder that Indiana Jones has this appearance of drama and excitement because it's Hollywood. But there still is a lot of excitement in archaeology. You still get to travel. You still get to learn all sorts of cool stuff. So I do like to to go out of my way to remind people of that, that it's not like what you see in the movies, but it's exciting in its own way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow. Okay. So you were – Okay, wait, wait, wait. I still want to go back to this this ex- first experience and intro to archaeology. So, what once you got hired on? I mean, because it sounded like when you were volunteering, it was mostly cleaning artifacts. Is that the way you? I'm trying to remember how archaeology.
2: Yeah, was uh, it was sorting of, of flotation samples, so uh, soil samples that have been collected for uh, microbotanical remains and, and other things. And so, I would, I got a big kick out of looking under the microscope. And, and magnifying lens and sorting those flotation samples. Uh, and of course that's something now that I wouldn't be so crazy or, or dying to do. <laughs> but it was something that, you know, for me to be 11, 12 years old, I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. And, you know, watching artifacts that were coming out of the field, I mean it wasn't, at that point, doing the field work. I, although I did participate. I mean I, I did in that very first opportunity when I was probably 11 or so. I think the the person running the program was, was Dr. Stu Reeves. And and some days it would be in the fall and, and it would just be him and I out on the screen on the, the park property doing some shovel test probes or, or test units. But those are sort of magical memories in terms of, of thinking about how much I was absorbing that I didn't know I was absorbing, how much I was learning. And, and it, you know, it it's, uh, really owes a lot to the, the mentorship I got, not only in those initial opportunities from Stu Reeves, but Julie King. Who who has long been a, a supporter and mentor and is just really spectacular. So really, I owe her a great debt for 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 keeping me on the track that, that put me where I am today.
1: Was that the same once you started getting paid and you mentioned then then you were doing field work? Was that the same type of field work that you got to do that first first year that you were doing work with them? Some of it was. There, there were again a lot
2: of simple test probes at the time. Um, Patterson Park and they had a number of contracts with the protection River Naval Air Station and so there were a lot of survey projects that were ongoing uh and so it was cool in as much as it was you know these were contracted projects that, that were bringing in money but they weren't sort of a typical CRM job so it was it was kind of like contract work but also a lot more academic because of the the background and orientation of uh Jefferson Patterson Park and so i did dig uh a really a large amount of, of shovel test probes at some of those those military installations in southern Maryland. But I did get some excavation time on, on one by one units. But the the people there really made that that possible. I think they were they were as excited as I was to to be able to have that opportunity. They were excited to have someone else who was interested in taking advantage of that opportunity. And you know a number of those people are still there working at Jeff Pat. So wow, really a great place.
1: So basically, you started your undergrad with more experience than a lot of people coming out of their PhDs. <laughs> so, what was that like? When, once you got into college,
2: so it was a benefit. Uh, you know, I, I, again, I, I readily acknowledge that I had a really privileged upbringing and background, uh, quite different than than the upbringing my mother had when she lived uh, on the reservation in South Dakota or was you know, traveling about with with, uh, her mother. And so, uh, you know, I I had the advantage of a really good education, provided me these opportunities, and uh, parents who were supportive. My parents were all on board for me doing these sorts of things, but I I think it was foreign to them in the sense that they didn't really know what to make of it. And I I didn't learn until years later that my mother was really not keen on the idea of me being involved in Uh, archaeology. Like a lot of uh, Native people today, she she shares an understandable perception of, of archaeologists, anthropologists, is a sort of useless uh, grave robbers or or thieves. And that's understandable. But, I, you know, she did, I think, to her credit, support me and said, OK, if this is what you want to do, then then you can do that. But, yeah, I, I didn't learn until later that she was really not not too much of a, of a fan about it. Um, mm-hmm. But she was there, support me all the way, which I, I remain grateful for. And, uh, yeah, these these projects sort of set me on the path and convinced me this is what I want to do. And that I, I can do it, that it's something you can you can make a living at doing. And so by the time I went to college, it, it, I had a a pretty solid, you know, body of a field work experience that I could draw upon. And I picked up a lot of academic stuff on the way. You know, it was it was I certainly would, would be handed readings by, by Dr. King or or Ed Cheney, who's one of the other uh, staff archaeologists working there. So they it's not as if they were slacking in that regard, but being able to to dig into to some of the academic literature and some of that was sort of what what college training um, brought to it.
1: And then from there, got a lot more of the the academic background in undergrad and then grad school. Tell me about that experience.
2: Yeah, I, I think it, it was uh, the, the benefit of, because I'd had those field experiences, while I, I recognized it was not perfectly akin to a lot of um, sort of CRM or contract jobs that people worked, I did see that I, I was working alongside some folks who often had gotten out of school with their their bachelor's degrees and were working sort of job to job. They worked really hard. And I met some great people who some stayed in archaeology, some got out of archaeology, went on to other things, Uh, some who I remained so many years later friends with. Uh, But I I think I saw that, you know, if if this is something I'm going to really commit to, as I, I sort of in my mind decided I was going to do, I thought, well, it seems like grad- graduate school is, is inevitability. And so it became a question of, do I go straight through or do I take, take time off? And I think that the, the rigor that was required of me academically when I went to Mercer University was good in that it sort of forced me to, to buckle down. Whereas that's sort of been, uh, as one professor said to me, I, I was sort of just sort of floating through uh, get, getting by doing the, the minimum amount of work and, and, I think when I realized that if I didn't buckle down and and pay attention to my academics and and really do well academically, it would jeopardize the likelihood that I could do what I wanted. And and that was sort of the non-negotiable part. And so from there on out, it it sort of kicked into high gear. And, you know, these sort of career trajectories don't unfold the way a lot of people think or expect they do. That's why I I think uh, thinking of it in terms of some sort of linear pathways is less appropriate than referring to it as some sort of ricochet where you're sort of bouncing around um, because I got into to perishable artifacts, organic artifacts at, at Mercyhurst, learning, learning about all that stuff there. And that blew me away just because I didn't know that any of this stuff had really survived in appreciable quantities. And, you know, I had gone in there thinking I was going to do historic archeology span and back in Maryland or something to that effect, but getting into the, the perishable artifacts, the baskets and textiles, sort of blew open a whole new world for me. And I was really, again, became hooked on that. And after that, it became uh, really simply a matter of figuring out where I could go to, to continue to pursue those issues. And so our, our major professor and the, the original founder of the, the Department of Mercers, Jim Adivacio, um, who baskets and textiles are his specialty, pretty much told, well, my now wife and I, that where we'd go to grad school was the University of Nevada, Reno, to work with Catherine Fowler, Kay Fowler. And she's an ethnobiologist, a sociocultural anthropologist by training, but also works with archaeological textiles and baskets. And that was at the time, and in some ways, it remains you know, one of the few places where you could go to sort of pursue additional graduate work focusing on organic material culture. So I, I've been lucky in some respects that I've been spared having to make these decisions myself. I've had great mentors and advisors to say, no, this is what you should do. Or in the case of Adivisor, this is what you will do.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. Can you talk maybe a little bit about your first experiences with with perishables then? I mean, how did you you get introduced? Was it a specific project or a class? I mean, you mentioned that it was his work, but was there a specific way that you personally engaged with it for the first time?
2: Yeah. and, And actually, it's probably, you know, second to being exposed to archaeology is probably one of the, the sort of the big turning points is I think it was my, my, sophomore year. I had the opportunity, you could sort of pick what labs you worked in. And so I, I had spent some time in, in the lithics lab and, and the processing lab, you know, and, and, this was all sort of somewhat familiar and I was learning a little bit about lithics, but it was sort of becoming a little bit redundant in terms of what I was, I, I wasn't learning a great deal. It was not because it was not through any fault of, of the other individuals in there, but rather that there was sort of a crunch on a, on a, another student's project. And so, uh, it was a lot of doing sort of the the same thing. And I just thought, you know, these, these rocks are cool, but my eyes started to wander as, as it were. And I learned that, that there was space for a work study in the, what was colloquially called the the basket lab at Mercyhurst, uh, where all the perishable artifact projects and, and things came through. And so I sort of put my name in the hat and, um, they decided that, that they, they would Give me a chance, and uh, so I started doing work study up there, and it really kind of clicked when Jim Aravasu offered his sort of perishable artifact class. So, like a lot of user, universities have ceramic and lithic classes, he, by virtue of his expertise in the stuff, offered a, a perishable class, and I, I took that course. And again, sort of just was bowled over by all the stuff that I was learning that just had never at all been on my radar. It wasn't something that ever made headlines unless it was a bog body or something like that. I mean, you people were aware that these things occasionally preserved, but for me, it was more just all the, the varieties of things that they preserved that I just had no idea. They, they don't, for some reason, weren't getting the publicity that a lot of other things were. And it got me thinking about some family pieces. So obviously, we you know, Native peoples of the plains are, are most well-known for their hide work and, and bead work and cool work. And understandably so, it, it makes sense that it's amazing stuff less well-known for basketry. And so I, I began to be thinking about sort of you know, what that would mean from a, a perspective of my family and background. And I was reminded that we had a, a little coiled basket that had been in the family. It was my great-great-grandmother's. And I brought it up uh, after a visit home and showed it to him and, and started talking about it. He knew and recognized it as a gambling basket said so there really isn't much written about them. And so that sort of clicked in my mind that this is something that I could learn a lot about that sort of directly ties into family history. It's, you know, archaeology and anthropology becoming a way for me, you know, it's broader, it's the archaeology and history of of the Americas, but it's also my specific family history that it bears on. And so I ended up doing my, my senior project, my undergraduate senior thesis on gambling baskets. And. They very kind that the Smithsonian let me in to look at some of their collections. Uh, I went to the Carnegie. I really got bitten by that research bug and, and took off looking at as many as I get my hands on. And, and that was when it clicked for me, that really you can, you can make this anthropology stuff really useful. Not only is it cool and, and there's great generation, and creation of knowledge for knowledge sake, but here I am learning things about this basket that's been in my family for 150 or more years that in many ways we've, We've lost this information. Uh, You know, I I found that really no one had been playing that game or it hadn't been documented as people playing this this dice gambling game since at least the twenties or thirties. So it was a a way for me to learn a little bit about family history, but also impressed upon me that anthropology can be really useful. Uh, It can be applied. It can help uh, reclaim things that Indian people, Native peoples, have lost and. I'd I'd say that was probably a big aha moment for me that we can't sort of or shouldn't divorce doing anthropology from making it serve people that it should benefit people and of course there's the frequent argument that you know knowledge for knowledge's sake is is an argument in and of itself and that's true but very much what archaeology is about benefits from the privilege of being able to do archaeology to think about archaeology to to be in a, a safe space to ask these questions so. Uh, I'm very much of, of the opinion, like a lot of, of our contemporary colleagues are today, Jessica, think that this is the way all archaeology should be done.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And on that note, we are already at our first break. But when we come back, I'd love to delve further into perishables. First of all, making sure that we, we define them for everybody. Um, obviously, you talked about baskets quite a bit, but there's lots of types of, of perishables. So let's Uh, Start out by defining those and then yeah, keep going on the perishables conversation for a bit. So we will be right back. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast
0: Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first 3 months or go to zencastr.com and use the code HEVO, H E V O. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on pricing and core structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode.
1: Okay, so we're back. And again, uh, I wanted to dive a little bit more into the concept of perishables because it's something that, like you mentioned earlier, I think a lot of people are are not really familiar with it's not as common as like lithics or ceramics in people knowing what they are in archaeology so could you other than baskets uh, could you give some other examples of what what are perishables
2: yes uh, that's a, a question that i think is worth talking a little bit more about it in part because it speaks to some of these bigger issues of visibility that come up when you talk about archaeology and, and you can take that and spin that in a number of different ways, but from the perspective of perishables, it has to do with their their comparative invisibility, uh, at least when we talk about lithics or ceramics or, or even things made out of bone and, and horn. Those more durable technologies are, are such because they tend to preserve a lot better in archaeological context. They survive the, the ravages of, of decay and, and preserve better. Um, perishables, in general, is sort of a broad class of material culture, are objects that are made out of really plant or, or animal-based materials. So organic materials that in most depositional contexts decay. So it really encompasses a wide range of organic-based technologies, uh, everything from a, a basket to a textile, to nets, to string, to footwear, hide working, quill working, uh, all those types of objects. So any 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 sort of woven or stitched elements, um, things that incorporate feathers, all of that. Now, obviously, you know, bone and and horn and antler, those things are are organic and they're perishable, but even a lot of archaeological settings, they tend to preserve better. And so, really owing to the way that archaeology has developed, perishable artifacts uh, with that sort of um, umbrella, including things that don't also amount to bone and, and antler tools, tend to be treated differently or have been described differently. And so even though bone and, and antler are organic, um, they haven't typically been been included in that notion of perishables. More often than not, what we're dealing with are little bits of string or bits of modified wood. Sometimes it might blur the line between an artifact, something made or u- used by humans, uh, and an ecofact where you, you can't really tell if it's if it's modified or used, but perhaps it's telling you something about human behavior, activity at a site. So the limits are tied to that that issue of visibility in as much as perishables tend to preserve in those environmental extremes, extremely wet, extremely dry, extremely cold, those, those situations that inhibit microbial growth and, and organic decay. So for that reason, they, they tend to be really rare in a lot of archaeological settings, um, unless it's one of those environmental extremes. And of course, some really rare circumstances where maybe if you're you're dealing with organic uh, materials that are that are buried or deposited in close association with metals like copper or silver that alter the surrounding soil chemistry and in, in the right environmental conditions can help preserve organic material. Otherwise, you're really limited when when you might be able to recover those. Now, there's a, a second related bias that that we often like to, to acknowledge that has to do with the, the gender bias, and that's more speaking to the fact that. Part of the reason why these technologies have historically been so understudied and neglected by anthropologists and archaeologists has to do with the fact that not only were a lot of these early archaeologists and anthropologists men, but these crafts themselves, when you look cross-culturally, are more often than not predominated by women. There are not necessarily exclusively the domain of women, but cross-culturally they tend to be predominantly women-associated crafts, female-associated crafts. And so... That probably lent a bit of a bias in terms of of who was asking questions, who was interested in studying these objects, and what role they played in our reconstructions of the past. And so these are important things to sort of acknowledge and be aware of because it's one of those things that helps inform how we understand the the biases of of our past interpretations and how that colors and impacts the interpretations that we hold on to today. I mean, it's always sort of struck me as really amazing that when you look at a number of, of small-scale or, or traditional societies for which organic-based material cultures are a significant part of their material culture repertoire, that in a lot of these societies, that you we're talking about 90% or more of the things they made and used are, are based in these perishable technologies. And when we have archaeological data that bear on this, again and again, we, we see evidence that, you know, more than 90% of what people are making and using in these societies is perishable. It's organic material. So the cool thing is, is it's amazing what archaeologists can learn from 10% or less of, of what people were making and using in the past. But at the same time, it's a little bit distressing that we're so limited in what we have to draw upon to make those inferences about the past. And and of course I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but it, you know, it's fair to say that we're we're missing huge amounts of what people made and used on a day-to-day basis. So when we get well-preserved perishable artifacts, they really can serve as unique glimpses of the past, really dramatically amplifying and informing what we know about past societies and lives and livelihoods in ways that we sometimes didn't think possible.
1: Well, I think there's also something very humanizing about perishables. You know, you you see, you look at uh, Lori Webster's Cedar Mesa's Perishables project, for example, and there's just these stunning examples of of artifacts like bags or sandals or feather blankets, like amazing, beautiful artifacts that if you look at it, you know exactly what what that was and what it was used for. And it's just so compelling, like as a human story, like you can look at it and really feel like you're connecting with people. From, from the past and that way when you see those artifacts which is why it's also fascinating like what you're saying that there is this bias against perishables when you know aesthetically they're so stunning so yeah I, I agree with everything you just said no
2: no and, and what you make is,
1: is a good point about
2: I mean it comes back to, to what I was sort of alluding to with this notion of, of visibility that these have been really invisible technologies from the perspective of, of archaeology and preservation but also in terms of the the visibility of the, the women that, that manufactured a lot of these are responsible for them. Uh, things have, have improved in recent decades, in no small part to to the work of people like um, Jamal Vaso and Lori Webster, who, who've made it a point to alter these long-held perceptions or misunderstandings. But you know, I think that that visibility aspect is also tied into why those of us that are really into it are so fascinated by them, but also why the, the public at large is really fascinated. They, they do look so much like they're a part of a, a, you know, a a living society, right? They, they seem so much more approachable and tangible because even though we don't make and manufacture our own footwear and clothing today, uh, you know, in, in contemporary North America, you know, they're still more familiar with us than something like a stone tool, uh, if that makes sense. Or, or people are are using ceramic pots, but they they're divorced from the production aspect. People are, are by and large say divorced from the, the acquisition of their own food. Our foraging takes place in grocery stores, and so perishables. You know, oftentimes, particularly when we talk about a textile or a basket or a sandal or something like that, they're they're what we might think of as additive technologies. So when you get good preservation, you're getting the preservation of the total artifact, right? You're, you're getting to see almost every step of the decision-making process that led to the, the fabrication of that artifact. Well, whereas if you're working with stone tools or, or even bone or, and certainly even in some cases, wood artifacts, they're largely reductive in as much as you're removing material to make them rather than, than add things together. And so I think that additive quality or nature of perishables lends themselves to Sort of inviting that contemplation of of what it was and how it was used, and and as I and a few other people I've I've talked with that study schools have often thought about, it bears on on bigger questions of you know the decision making. Uh, You know, I I certainly feel like you get a little bit closer to the individual when you're looking at these things when you can look at how uh, uh, stitching thread has been spliced in. Or you can seek to arrive at some informed understanding of why a, a weaver made a particular decorative choice or decision to use a certain type of plant material. Uh, and those are the things that, again, like you said, they really, they help humanize the past. They bring us close to the past. And um, I know a lot of us, I think one of the things that makes archaeology so exciting is that in some ways it's the closest we'll get to time travel when you get to to see these things and hold these things that, that have been... Separated from from humans for so long, in in some cases.
1: Okay, I have lots and lots of questions, and I'm going to try and just stick to one at a time instead of asking three at once, like I usually do. <laughs> so, I guess first, let's say let's say you're somebody that's that's really interested in perishables, but like you said, these these are not everywhere. So, you're a grad student. You're really interested in working with perishables because you're interested in this human element. Where? do you go to do this research? I mean, are you picking sites and areas that you think are likely to have perishables or are you working in museum collections?
2: So it, it can be a mix of both, realistically. Uh, the, part of it is that there's such a backlog of material in museums. So you also have the benefit of, of contemporary materials, ethnographic, or historic materials, because and those is, you know, Kay Fowler was really the, the, the one who stressed this, to me early on is that, you know, you need, the, you need the ethnographic material, not only as a source of analogy for interpreting the archaeological record, but it, remember that's the end point, that's the destination. You know, you can look at these complete baskets and textiles and moccasins, and they give you insights into production and design choices in more recent time periods. But those are all, you know, the culmination of everything that came before, all of the, the human uh, social and behavioral processes that, that led to the construction of the artifacts. Uh, it represents the culmination of all that came before. So those those endpoints or destinations are necessary to be able to reflect upon and think about what you see in the in the archaeological record. And in that case, you've got large collections of ethnographic and archaeological materials. It's harder in some ways today because there aren't, and this is a good thing, there aren't the the large scale archaeological projects that are just. Removing tons and tons of sediment and artifacts, you know, back in, in the late 19th, early 20th century, when there was still a lot of not professional archaeologists, but, but sort of looting, systematic looting instruction destruction of sites uh, where the focus on the acquisition of antiquities, you know, those produced some of the largest collections of perishable organic artifacts that we have available to us today. Um, and it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to acquire anything approaching that level of material today, given modern Ethics and approaches to, to field archaeology, so it's it's both a, a good and a bad thing. But the, the good thing is that we do get better contextual information, right? We're doing better archaeology, so we can learn for from the, the more from the few things that, that crop up. So on the one hand, you've got you know all of these collections, uh, like what Lord Webster has been great with working with, and what I've worked a lot with is you know getting new data from existing collections. Uh, it it for me when I was working on my dissertation on on the basket from Chaco Canyon and, and, and other sites in the Four Corners region that, you know, for all the ink spilled about Chaco Canyon and interpretation of Chaco Canyon, it was new data that in some cases had been sitting there since the 1890s in the museum, and, and no one until Lori had really thought to even, you know, start to dig into it. So museum collections are really important, but also uh, new collections, I think, provide a really important avenue. But it, it requires an, an awareness that, you know, you might encounter these but also in, in circumstances where people don't expect to find them. Just increasing people's awareness is important. So for, for graduate students that might have an interest or anybody, there's a lot to be done with existing museum collections. And you can do a lot to help sort of further interest and, and awareness of this material by making yourself more aware of it and, and knowing and, and anticipating that even though you're working at sort of some open site outside of Phoenix or, or in, in the Central Valley, California, that just because you don't expect to get organic preservation doesn't mean that there might not be situations or contexts in which they preserve. It might be accidental impressions of fabrics in clay or asphaltum, uh, the bitumen or naturally occurring tar uh, sometimes occurs in, in Southern California. So it, it's just thinking more about how we can do better to make ourselves more aware of this. And I, I guess that's a nice segue to, to talk a little bit about a, a project that has really been great to be involved with. Um David Robinson, who's an archaeology professor at the, the University of Central Lancashire in the UK, and, and in collaboration with um, John Johnson, who's a curator at the Santa Barbara Museum of Natural History, and Julie Bernard in LA, have been working at a, a cave site uh, called Cache Cave in the Wind Preserve, sort of in between, geographically between Santa Barbara and... Bakersfield, California. And their work out there produced a a large volume of organic material, uh, perishables, baskets, bits of string, nets, uh, and the like that I've been fortunate enough to be involved with in in the analysis of uh, as part of their project. And that was a really unique and amazing opportunity, not only because they've been very attentive to making sure this material is properly cared for and, and excavated, but They very quickly picked up on how important this site was in in terms of California archaeology, where, again, it's an area where you don't get a lot of good organic preservation, right? You don't have a lot of caves or rock shelters. You don't have uh, large volumes of waterlogged sites where you're going to get good organic preservation. So they've done a really great job, uh, and it's been a pleasure to work with them and their collaborators on this material. We're, We're just sort of slowly kicking into high gear. And we've been working increasingly with uh, Chumash descendants, community members, as well as members of the uh, Tejon tribe and and their community. And this has been in some ways one of the more exciting projects for me to be a part of, because we're at the stage now where we can talk and think more about outcomes in terms of what the Tejon tribe and Chumash descendants want to see and what questions they have, because we have a a, a well Documented provenance collection of archaeologically recovered materials of some important size, uh, pr- probably I think certainly numerically, but in terms of volume, probably one of the the biggest collections of, of perishables recovered scientifically from California and perhaps much of the West. And so, in, in the coming years, that's going to be a really great project and one that I I hope you know can benefit from some of the, the lessons that Lori Webster and and her work with Louis Garcia and Chris Lewis and Mary Waaki and. Chuck LaRue have taught us about these types of of not just collaborative, but interdisciplinary projects. Um, You know, it it shifts the focus in ways that I think is really important.
1: Yeah, lots to say about that. First of all, so what, what you were describing right there at the end is that Lori Webster has been working with Artisans from some of the communities that are descendant from the collections that she's working with um, and going with them, as well as um, Chuck LaRue, I believe, is a biologist, if I remember correctly. So he knows, you know, like the bird feathers and things like that. I'm also working with uh, Aaron Garrity, who's a good friend of mine. Hi, Aaron. She's an archaeologist. Yes, yes, and yeah. They're so they're just doing really interesting collaborative work, looking at perishables collections from archaeological and biological and cultural, um, you know, tribal cultural artist perspectives. So that's that was what you were referring to right there at the end. Also, uh, if anyone's interested in learning more about Tejon and some of their work. You can refer back to Heritage Voices episode 14, Nation Building After Federal Recognition. They are great. So I'm very excited to hear that you're working with them. They're awesome. Yes, And so we're, we're actually already at our second break point, which is crazy. Again, I have 15 million questions in my mind for the next segment. But what I'd, I'd really like to go into next is kind of talking some more about examples like the one that you just gave of working with communities on this type of archeology. span So either like you mentioned um, as working with the ethnographic examples or something like Lori, where you're working with artisans today or uh, whatever other examples um, you might have about how perishables and communities could work together on, on tribally led type projects. So on that note, we will be right back.
0: Hello, it's Jim Eagle. Please join us for the Bay Area American Indian Two-Spirit Society's 11th Annual Two-Spirit Power in person or online this year at San Francisco Fort Mason Center on Saturday, February 12, 2022. Gore Dance at noon and grand entry begins at 1 p.m. There will be over 60 vendors selling all types of indigenous products and crafts. Power dancers from all over the U.S. will be competing in contests all day long. We'll also be having several delicious fry bread taco vendors. For more information, go to Bates.org. That's B-A-A-I-T-S.org. COVID protocols will be in effect. See you there.
1: Okay, so jumping back in, again, I mentioned I wanted to ask about tribally-led archaeology projects, well, I guess in this case, collections projects, potentially, and just the different ways that tribes and archaeologists and curators can work together on, on perishable collections. So could you could you talk some more about some of your experiences there or where you'd like to see that type of work go?
2: Yeah, I think um, it, it dovetails really nicely with what we are just talking about with regards to the, the Tejon and, and, and Chumash communities, taking an interest in, in some of the work that, that Robinson and, and his colleagues have been doing at the Cache Cave site. While we're sort of at an earlier formative stage in, in the work we're doing with, with Tejon and, and Chumash communities, one of the things that that sort of unites That project and some of the others that I've been really interested in doing is, you know, not just making projects that are are applied or or have applications and relevance to diverse publics and and descendant communities, but but thinking more about, you know, what what sort of questions might emerge from the communities themselves. And so in the case of of the Cache Cave work in California, um, you know, there's a a natural outgrowth of of questions that I I know that we can begin to ask and, and evaluate or assess from the data that are available. But there are also alternative ways that, that people who are sort of switched on and, and really engaging with contemporary technology can come up with, with new ways of, of making them relevant and applicable. And, and uh, if, if you you spoke to uh, Sandra Hernandez and Colin Rambo from the, the Tejon tribe, they might, might have talked a little bit about their work with David Robinson and the work they've been doing with, with 3D modeling and, and virtual reality, which is really spectacular stuff because it's Digitization of artifacts and objects that have come from the site that can then be made available to elders in the community or other members of the public uh, without perhaps making the difficult hike up to the site or uh, traveling some distance in a car to visit objects in a museum, but provides a a way of of visualizing and, and even sort of virtually handling some of these objects. That makes you know public outreach and and education for diverse publics really it's a powerful tool and, and one that is for me really struck me as innovative in the way that they're engaging these communities. So that with with Tejon and and Chumash descendants has become a really powerful way to get me thinking about other innovative ways in which we might engage uh, a more tribally driven archaeology. That is where where the questions are fundamentally coming from the tribes. And that was amplified by work that, that I had been engaged in and still involved with with the Seneca Nation of Indians based out of, of Salamanca, New York, um, not too far from where I was, was working previously in, in northwestern Pennsylvania. Uh, and Jay Toth, who was the tribal archaeologist at the time, who's now retired, hugely knowledgeable of local history and archaeology, he came to us uh, with a, a question about what we could do to help him with sort of a preservation initiative at a site called Custaloga Town, which was a uh, French and Indian War era, Delaware and Seneca village, uh, that also, according to historical documents and records, was the, the final resting place of Gaiusuta, a prominent Seneca diplomat and, and war leader, uh, somebody figured prominently in, in, in Pontiac's War. And in fact, in some cases, it was even referred to as Gaiusuta's War. And so this prominent Seneca individual, at a site that is, is mentioned in historical documents as um, sort of on the frontiers, as it were, in Western Pennsylvania during the French Indian War, provide a unique opportunity for us to collaborate on some, some limited test excavations, some remote sensing work to uh, identify and map burial localities or possible burial localities, and, and talk about uh, how we might fo- move forward in terms of preservation. Um, and it's a credit to, to Jay, who in his capacity as tribal archeologist had this vision to know that, you know, the site being on, on in, in effect, private land, be subject to potentially, you know, harmful interventions, uh, depending on who the future landowners may or may not be. And it was really good about bringing a lot of people together. So we were able to engage not only with the Seneca in the course of our work, who, again, asked us to come do this work to help them um, document and, and preserve this site, but also work collaboratively with, with other institutions like the um, French Creek Valley Conservancy, a, a land Conservancy agency in the vicinity, working in the vicinity of the site, who was working on getting some land easements to protect uh, the corridor around the water, which would also encompass part of the site. And uh, I just I, I learned so much from Jay working and collaborating on that project, but also, it just sort of you know, reaffirmed for me this is the type of archaeology that we should be doing. And so in that case, the Seneca Nation came to us and, and, and Jay on their behalf said, "You know, this is what I think we should do. Are you willing and able to help us? And of course we said, yes, we'd, we'd be happy to. But I don't think there's a lot of situations where a lot of descendant communities or Native peoples are in that position of being able to do that. And so one of the really great conversations that we had with with Sandra and Colin from from Tehone uh, and and other community members was you know in some cases it, it's 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 hard for people to know what you can do with archaeological material without a lot of background uh, or, or even some training in it. And Jay had the benefit of having a fairly extensive background and training in, in graduate education in archaeology and knew the the area and the archaeology really well. So he he had a very targeted idea of what he wanted us to do and how we could help him accomplish his goals where we are with, with these, some of these other projects is thinking more about what, what potential is there for projects. And I guess if there's a a piece of advice is it's getting other people to help the people that they're working with, they want to collaborate with uh, Think in terms of uh, applicability and framing possible research questions in terms of broad topics of interest or applicability or relevance to the community at hand. And, uh, you know, Sometimes if you're particularly an outsider, you know, there are going to be topics of interest or concern that really only community members can speak to. And so it's, it starts with having an initial conversation about what those topics are, finding out what their interests are, what, what their concerns are, what they would like to communicate or what they would like other community members to, to get from this type of, of work. That you then, as the 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 collaborating researcher, can come back and say, okay, these are the angles, or these are the way that I think we can spin this, and you know, with a little bit of, of, of thoughtfulness and, and rumination on the subject, come up with some ideas that you can present possible research questions that that relate to their their topics of interest. Because the simple matter is that you know, just for a variety of different reasons, uh, some community members tribal members, they, they might not have the background. They, they might just not know what questions to ask or, or what is going to be of interest or use. And so it makes it in some ways too easy for, for archaeologists to step in and say, well, this is what you can learn. This is what I'm interested in. So this is what we're going to do. Um, I, I think you know, with a little bit of, of thoughtfulness and, and, and taking your time to think about what their concerns interest are, most things you can really spin to make related to a topic of archaeological interest such that the, the data that you, you are hoping to collect or the data that you, you have had to collect as part of a mitigation project or what have you can, can serve community interests. Um, and of course, this isn't something that applies solely to, to tribal nations and, and descendant communities, but really the public at large. And so I, really, it's, it's become important for me to think more in terms of this applicability. Um, it's not just about knowledge for knowledge's sake, but as I said earlier, you know, making this stuff relevant, uh, giving it meaning to, to the people who most identify with this material or, or have a vested interest in it.
1: Okay. This is where I'm going to, I can't avoid it. I'm going to get into two questions at once. I'm sorry, but <laughs> so, okay. Obviously you've worked on collections that have come from, from all over the world. Um, so I'd be curious, first of all, I mean, going back to to some of what we were talking about earlier, if you're seeing differences in the various regions of the world or or various places that you've looked at collections from. But then also, I guess, tying back to this this last question, and I'm not sure maybe whether or not it's too early to answer it or not, or, well, I'll, I'll just ask it and let you respond, which is, are you seeing a difference in the way that... Communities are tied to those collections across the world, or how they're worked with, or their interest levels in collections. Or yeah, I, I think I, I think I see what you're getting. <laughs> I think I see what you're getting <laughs> at is is that yeah, uh, you know,
2: so there, there's a limit. Obviously, there's a limit in terms of preservation, and there's also uh, a wide range of variability in terms of how indigenous peoples have survived, responded to, and dealt with the traumatic effects of, of contact uh, with, with colonizing populations. And so, you know, it's, it's the case in some places like California where, I mean, gosh, you know, California in many ways, you know, na- native peoples of California are, are famous for the basketry. And, and rightfully so, it's produced some of the, the world's, you know, most amazing basketry. Other areas, you know, it's not as well known. And, and if the preservation isn't there, it's really, uh, there's so little known about it. And so me, when I was looking at plains basketry, I came to have a, a greater appreciation for what had been sort of buried in the gray literature and some of the the old archaeological reports and even some of the the ethnographic writings. Things that you know, even by the the late nineteenth early twentieth century, had had more or less vanished. So, there, so there's that challenge of sort of coping with the the inadequate database, as it were. But the flip side too is is um, one one recent project with a, a former student, Kay Matena, who is pursuing her graduate degree with Sonia Atulai, um at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. She is a, a Potawatomi, a citizen band Potawatomi descent, and uh, participated in the, the field school that we were doing out at Costa Town. And, and uh, I think that was a, appealing to her in terms of the way that we and the Seneca Nation were approaching the work that we were doing. And I, I came upon the opportunity to work on a textile that had been excavated by uh, Eric Drake, Uh, who was the Forest Service archaeologist for Hiawatha National Forest in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, uh, and his collaborator, uh, Jim Skiba, who just recently retired. Uh, They'd recovered this from uh, a site, uh, an open site uh, on Grand Island, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and it was uh, uh, preserved by associates with copper, a little fragment of a textile, and that became the focus of Kay's senior project, sort of in a a mirror image of, of what I experienced as a college student working with gambling baskets, Kay was able to re-engage with this artifact that came from, uh, the closest contemporary community would be the, the Bay Mills Indian community. And this was something that, again, you know, these types of, of fiber-based arts don't survive. They, they are, are are dormant. In some cases, the knowledge has, has been lost. And so, for K and I, this, this textile preserving that we, we ultimately determined through radiocarbon dating probably dated to the early 19th century. So sort of peak fur trade time, uh, was extremely finely made, decorated. Uh, we we're able to, with, with guidance from, from conservators like Nancy Odegaard and Gina Watkinson here at the Arizona state museum at the university of Arizona, we were able to uh, very carefully unfold this crumpled up piece of fabric and, expose how much of this had been really well preserved, but also just how amazing and fine it was. Uh, And ultimately, we sort of conclude it was more likely a a, a garter uh, or a band, and it was made out of uh, locally available plant fibers, perhaps nettle uh, or basswood. And that is the thing that obviously resonates with me, but also given uh, the proximity of, of Kay's ancestors to that landscape, it resonated with us. And likewise, with, with some of the, the archaeologists who've been involved, and I think uh, ultimately the plan is to get that object and some of the replicas that Kay made uh, to understand the technology back to the Bay Mills Inning community. And it's these types of projects that, that I find most powerful because they might, they might institute or stimulate a rejuvenation or a regeneration of some of these technologies. They might stimulate interest in ways that promote a, a resurgence of, of interest and in production
1: of these technologies. So it was talking about like the differences in textiles themselves between regions and then, uh, or not textiles, perishables, and then the differences in how people connect to them or relate to them or like how much people engage them. Or
2: I, mean, I think the first time you mentioned that question, I was thinking in terms of distinguishing social or, or ethnic groups from the the textiles and then realized that perhaps you were talking more about community responses to these objects.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, let's hear about both because <laughs> I, I would love to hear about. Yeah, we have that
2: resonance with organic artifacts mm-hmm. and perishable technologies and, and descendant communities and, and indigenous peoples that can vary in terms of the experience that peoples have with them, or the extent to which some of these traditions uh, have have survived and 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 continue on uninterrupted today, and that obviously varies depending on, on local. Context and, and history, uh, but it, it, you know, in some cases, it becomes a, a question of sort of looking at what the data can tell us about you know past demographic changes or, or upheavals or migrations and population movements, some of those things. And so, I, I think that's been another appealing aspect: is that like ceramics or, or lithics or, or other class of material culture, you know, perishables can help us address many of the same research questions that archaeologists have long been interested in. So that means that we can begin to ask questions about population movement or, or regional differences. And the cool thing for me is that I think it's a byproduct of not only the the scarcity of, of data available that's perishable to work with means you sort of, you kind of have to work with what you have. And believe that means that, you know, it's a terrible pun, but I like to make it. You have to cast a broad net, right? You've got to work with everything that's available. And so – I'm, I'm always trying to do better in terms of, of looking more broadly and thinking more broadly and so looking for broader connections because sometimes if I'm, if I'm thinking about and want to access comparative data for an object or, or an assemblage, it requires that you really you, you look far and wide. Uh, so it, it's not sufficient to look at an assemblage that maybe came from a site in southern Utah and limit yourself to sites in Utah or even the Four Corners region. right? P- people in the past were far more connected – Uh, over vast distances than than people generally appreciate. And I think archaeologists and and others have been getting better at at appreciating that fact. The sophistication and degree of interconnectedness, uh, at least the the trade and exchange networks that extended far beyond what we typically would expect or or know purely from the historic record, means that these cultural and geographic areas, they, they sort of shrink. So it becomes a question of scale far as you might start with one site and one assemblage or maybe maybe even a handful of, of sites and assemblages, but you can get glimpses into more far-flung uh, or more far-removed connections and social interactions or, or, or social boundaries and identities by by taking that broader approach and perspective. And so I think at, at, a, at a sort of much larger scale, working with perishables is not only heighten my awareness and attentiveness to biases in, in terms of artifact collection and, and sampling, but also some of these issues of scale and that there are questions that we can address with the data at hand. Sometimes you have to, to go look at a broader geographic or, or temporal scale to get those data. And the benefit is it, it opens up new avenues and new ways of thinking about connectedness, thinking about the, the shared traditions of learning and teaching these crafts and how that might impact the way that we think about connections between some of these archaeological regions or archaeological uh, cultures and quotations, if you want to think about them that way.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we're getting short on time, but I want to kind of give an example of this, of what you were just talking about. So I know you've worked quite a bit with Chaco, the Chaco area and Mesa Verde. Could you kind of give an example of what... That might look like if you're looking at at those areas. Sure. So
2: I think it comes from a recognition that you know when you, when you start looking at at almost a you know a, a continent wide scale uh, that you start thinking really big that there are certain types of technologies weave structures or weaving techniques that that sort at very broad social and geographic scales and and a lot of this is of course governed by the historical relationships, the social relationships among groups of people, and the ways in which they, they taught and learned these particular perishable technologies, uh, how they uh, learned and uh, to, to weave textiles and, and sew baskets and vice versa. That in many ways sort of governs how these technologies across a geographic area might evidence greater, or lesser technological similarity, right? Because what you're, you're looking at is, and one way to think about it, is that you're looking at sort of these shared histories of learning and teaching the craft. So why one particular tradition might make a, a technical choice to, to finish or start their basket in a particular way, and we see that replicated over millennia or, or centuries in one area, and it may differ from uh, an adjacent area, sometimes uh, in, in close proximity, but sometimes at, at a great distance removed from that site. What you get are, are glimpses into over the long term how those, those interactions might have changed or fluctuated. So, there's some areas like you can see in, in some of the, the sandals and baskets from the Mesa Verde region where, of course, there's contact. You see things that cross cut those, those boundaries that we typically associate with the Mesa Verde region. But there's also some, some long lived continuity when you, when you look deep into the archaeological record that's available, you see certain decisions in terms of how baskets are made or, or our sandals are constructed that persist for centuries or in some cases millennia and, and reflected a degree of continuity. And so once you can sort of seize upon those, it requires having adequate data. But when you have you know, adequate data sets, you can begin to ask these, I find, far more interesting questions about finer scale social and cultural variability you know, the, these archaeological culture areas, they stand out to archaeologists so well because the the boundaries are rougher. Um, the, the material and cultural similarities and differences tend to be greater. So it's it's easier to delineate some of those, those broad scale boundaries. But what's more interesting is when you start to, to tease apart some of the, the subtle variation that, that occurs at the site of a, a, or scale of an individual site, you, you might find uh, as I did in some case, that some of those sandals that occur at, at Pueblo Benito and Chaco Canyon are made in ways that uh, superficially exhibit sandals that occur from sites that are uh, of roughly the same age and maybe a little bit younger, from uh, say Antelope House in Canyon de Che in Arizona. And what they're doing is they're not they're not executing those decorations or those designs in the same way. They're so they're they're copying the the idea and perhaps the symbol but their method of execution is is very clearly steeped in their local tradition of of production. And so it's those types of insights that I think are are most striking and insightful uh, in terms of understanding diversity in the past. Um, And the cool thing is, is I think we're finally getting at the point where we have both the the technological tools and the the sufficient data and, and sort of theoretical toolbox that allows us to approach these these more tricky questions at finer social and spatial scales. No longer are we forced to just talk about archaeological culture areas or archaeological culture complexes. We can we can start talking about internal diversity in those. And to me that that is also something that 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 resonates with a lot of other descendant communities. It helps humanize the past. It's not these monolithic archaeological cultures.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, I apologize for uh, making you sum up your dissertation basically in like five minutes, <laughs> less than that.
2: No, no, no worries.
1: But uh, yeah, what you, one thing you just said there about humanizing the past uh, that I think just an example from perishables that I always find so fascinating uh, from Aaron Garrity's master thesis is that uh, some sandals, for example, will have human hair woven into the sandal, but not necessarily showing like, it'll Mm -hmm. be on the inside of the sandal. So it was obviously put there for some reason, but not necessarily in a visible way. So yeah, I think there's just this, this way that perishables can really, just be fascinating on that human level. Like you were, you were saying, but we are at the end here. And so I just wanted to give you an opportunity. If there's anything else that you've been itching to say, or that you really want our listeners to know or, or to hear, here's your chance.
2: Uh, I, not really. Uh, thank you so much for having me That This is, this is great fun. And uh, I, I just, you know, like to remind people if you're in these situations where you're you're going to be working with other people, um, as, as Kay Fowler reminded me when I was a, a very nascent graduate student, just shut up and listen. <laughs> That's the best thing you can do. Just shut up and listen. Yes, Listen to what people have to tell you. Thanks so much. Yeah, as a,
1: as a, as a cultural anthropologist, there is nothing like <laughs> silence as a tool. Yeah. It's everything. Yeah. Well, on that note, thank you so much for coming on and I'm really excited to share this episode.
2: Thank you, Jessica. I I appreciate the opportunity and uh, thank thank you again for, for all your efforts.
1: Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash voices Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music Store. Also, please share with your friends or write us a review. Sharing and reviewing helps more people find the show and gets the perspectives of Heritage Voices amazing guests out there into the world. Don't we just need more of that in anthropology and land management? If you have any more questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org if you'd like to volunteer to be on the show as a guest or even a co-host reach out to me as well Jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org you can also follow more of what I'm doing on Facebook at Living Heritage Anthropology and the nonprofit Living Heritage Research Council or on Twitter at Living Heritage A as always huge thank you to Lyle Balenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo
0: Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.